Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for checking out this podcast series where we've paired with our friends at the television show Guiding Flow to share guests and continue the conversations and discussions that happen on each episode. You can watch this episode by heading to Waypoint TV or by checking out the blog post at captainscollective.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, Turtle Box Audio, Coast the Sunglasses, Traeger Grills, and Orvis Fly Fishing. I love working with these companies and I'm grateful for their contribution so that we can continue the conversation. To learn more about them and why we've chosen to partner together, head to captainscollective.com. Recently, water quality issues in the Everglades in South Florida have been the center of a lot of attention, and there's currently a fight happening to see restoration projects fully funded in order to save this amazing place. I recently sat down with Chris Whitman, who is the co-founder of the grassroots nonprofit organization Captains for Clean Water, which helps the fight to restore and protect our water resources. In this podcast, Chris gives us an overview into the issues that are currently facing Florida's waters and walks us through how there's an opportunity happening right now to see these issues resolved. To learn more about Chris and to hear his story, check out our episode 36, where Chris and I cover everything from conservation to hunting camp pranks. To learn more about how you can help protect our waters for generations to come, head to captainsforcleanwater.org. Now, let's get into the show. Well, hey, Chris, it's good to be sitting down with you again and having you on the podcast. You were the first uh, person to be on the podcast twice. And nice. uh, kind of exciting situation we have here to be sitting down and, and talking about the potential of seeing a huge restoration project with the Florida Everglades and all of the South Florida water. And I'm excited to really hear more about what potential we have with, with this new kind of upcoming legislation. But before we dive into that, can you give us a big picture overview of what exactly are the major water quality issues that we are seeing in South Florida? Sure. Thank you. And uh, great to be here again, be on the podcast for a second time. Uh, not sure how I got qualified to be the first repeat, but stoked. Um, you know, unfortunately, water quality issues in Florida um, are more common than we would like them to be. It's kind of like Florida's dying from a thousand cuts. Um, we have issues with conveyance, water management, basically where the water goes. Um, in the Everglades system, that water historically would fall from rain and springs on, uh, would fall, would, would fall on the landscape, uh, from Orlando South basically, and would flow down into Lake Okeechobee, would overflow the Southern rim of Lake Okeechobee and would feed down through what's known as the river of grass and, and in through what today we think of as the Everglades. Um, so that conveyance was changed. Um, the water no longer can naturally flow. Uh, there's a dike around Lake Okeechobee. There's drainage canals throughout the air Everglades, uh, central Everglades. And, uh, that water's bled out to sea, out to the coasts. Um, that creates some serious problems, uh, creates problems where the water is pushed to, um, on the coast where I live in Fort Myers along the Caloosahatchee river, as well as the East coast in St. Lucie and Stewart area. Uh, and then also for the Southern part of the system that doesn't get that water now, 
so, so there's the conveyance issue, um, throws off salinities and, and the balance in those systems. There's also a p pollution issue and nutrient issue. Um, you know, we have way too much phosphorus, primarily from uh, industrial agriculture uh, fertilizing, and way too much nutrients uh, or nitrogen from, you know, everything from septic tanks to failing sewage infrastructure to fertilizers. And those nutrients are fuel for algae blooms, harmful algae blooms. And, and those um, can take the form of uh, cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, um, which is toxic in freshwater, and then, or uh, like red tide um, out in the saltwater. All of those um, are a result of too much nutrients, mm -hmm. too much pollution. And uh, we really kind of have two... Uh, methods of attack there. One is the conveyance of, of water through Everglades restoration projects, cleaning that water with filter marshes and then returning the, the flow south. The other is uh, the quality side is through legislation. We need significant water quality legislation out of the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people have seen photos of algae blooms and there's a there's an aesthetic to it that kind of you can look at it and immediately know like when you see a huge algae bloom this is not right yeah but one of the issues that i think often people come across is when we're talking about salinity issues it's not something that you can just necessarily look at and see could you just explain a little bit more like if somebody's just looking at they're standing in sanibel or that they're standing, you know, somewhere in South Florida that's not getting enough yeah. water. What's happening beneath the surface there, and how does that impact the fishery? Sure. So, with salinity issues, um, you look at you think of like a saltwater aquarium, and how you know there's a, a very fine balance there for everything to be in harmony. When you throw off the salinity balance in an, in an estuary, um, in our case up here in, in the northern part in, in, on the east and west coast, uh, we get too much fresh water. So you drop salinities. When you drop salinities for you know weeks or months at a time, the oysters die, the seagrass dies, and with that habitat loss um, affects your fishery, but also you then have the decaying seagrass that, that then releases more nutrients into the water that were sequestered in those plants. Um, you add turbidity because you no longer have those, uh, you know, those, those ecosystems or, or those uh, habitats binding the bottom. Um, so it's a very long term. You know, we, we have a bad water quality uh, spit for, let's say, three or four months. The impacts of that will be felt for years. Because once you lose that, those, those grass beds or oyster beds, it takes years for them to recover if the conditions are are adequate for them to recover. The south part of the system, Florida Bay, um, is a similar outcome, but it's from being too salty. So the water we're getting needs to go there. They don't get it. And so Florida Bay, um, you kind of look at it, it's kind of like a big ice cube tray where you've got these deeper pools and then these, these kind of ridges. And they form like these ponds. And so when the low tide comes you know goes out and and water evaporates it leaves behind salt water more salt water comes in 
without that influx of fresh water coming from the Everglades, it gets saltier and saltier. And the result is, again, habitat loss. In 2015, uh, Florida Bay lost 50,000 acres of seagrass. So you're right. It's not something that you can necessarily tangibly see like an algae bloom, but you can tangibly see the impacts mm-hmm. um, of it. And, and uh, you know, I would say it's no less damaging than the algae bloom. In Florida Bay, they had f- so much seagrass die at one time um, where they lost that 50,000 acres. The result of that was an algae bloom because you had all this grass that died, basically decomposed in the water, mm. released nutrients, and ignited a massive algae bloom turning you know crystal clear waters of Florida Bay into pea soup. Mm. So. Yeah, and, and I was kind of thinking about hard to see it for people who aren't on the water every single day. You know, it's until, unfortunately, until something like a huge fish kill or, a, you know, a huge seagrass kill, it often doesn't click for people who yeah. just come in from out of state or casually go every couple, you know, months to the beach. Could you could you just describe to me the first time that you kind of walked out and really noticed the carnage of it? Because this has been happening a long time, but it's recently, thanks to the help of organizations like Captains for Clean Water, getting the attention it deserves. But could you just describe that carnage of what happens with that? Yeah, I mean, as a fishing guide, it was real easy to kind of notice when those things were starting. You'd go catch bait for a morning's charter, and you'd run back towards the mouth of the river, and all your bait would die. Um, that kind of compounded in when we've seen these massive, uh, you know, catastrophic events where we have huge discharges from Lake Okeechobee, tons of pollution and nutrients being put into the coastal estuary, fueling red tide. Um, I mean, it's 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 basically apocalyptic. It's, uh, you'll see tide seams where tides going out or coming in. Um, and it's compressing what would normally be, you know, like a weed line with, with floating grasses and stuff to areas miles long of dead fish. Um, and not just dead fish, but like different life all the way from the bottom. So this isn't something that's just like affecting these pockets it's you're seeing you know eels and and worms and and you know things that live down in the bottom that are dying when it becomes that toxic but you know i don't think there's anything as impactful to a fisherman and an angler than running for you know miles and miles and miles and seeing rafts of dead fish that are you know 20 30 feet wide and four or five miles long um you know, in 2018, we had a whale shark wash up on the beach of Sanibel. We had sea turtles dying, manatees dying, dolphins dying. All of our game fish, uh, tarp and snook, redfish, cobia, species that are typically very, very hardy, um, were dying. Mm-hmm. And it was something that, uh, you know, they were literally, they had front end loaders and, and, caterpillars and and massive uh, dump trucks and stuff out on our beaches cleaning up dead marine life wow (laughs) yeah that's not that's not good for guides that's not good for restaurants residents any anybody and um 
another question I was kind of curious about is, you know, you talked about this has been going on for a long time. Is this something that is compounding each year where it's, it's cause I think that you could look at some of the projects that some of the, the ways that man has manipulated that water. And it, I think some people could say it's the deeds done, you know, is it getting compoundingly worse? Do, do, do you guys think? Yeah. I think if you look at degradation as like a, a sliding scale, like the, the moment, the changes were made to the ecosystem. You didn't just immediately start this downward trend, but the longer those changes were in effect, the more the the qu- more quickly that decline happens. So mm-hmm. the farther in time you go, the steeper that curve and the faster that curve down happens. Recovery is the same way though. If we can fix it, you're not going to immediately see the seagrass come back. But the longer that it's in a period of recovery the faster you will see recovery happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is. It's something that the longer we let these problems last, the more frequent the the symptoms will become. And I think it's important because it's easy for people to um, be inspired to take action and get involved when there is a catastrophe, right? Mm-hmm. It, and it's right there and it's undeniable and it's in your face. But what we have to remember is the underlying causes of those symptoms still exist even when we have periods of good water quality um, and we're not getting these massive discharges from the lake or there's been enough rain in the southern part of the system to help rebound and lower some of those salinities. But the, the problem's still there. And mm-hmm. so we can't get complacent and only take action when we have catastrophes. Yeah, and I, I think that's something you guys have done well is not just being a flash in the pan, but continuing to keep people, keep it on people's mind and help them keep it on everyone's mind across the state and even outside of our state too. And it leads kind of really well to why we're here today, which is not to talk about doom and gloom, and to, but to actually talk about an opportunity that we have to see some funding happen for 68 projects mm-hmm. that will actually really make a difference and start to change that trajectory could you give i mean when i think when people hear that it's overwhelming 68 pro- that's a lot of projects that's a lot of engineering biologists a lot of people involved but could you kind of give a simple uh, explanation about what those projects are and how they're going to help the the overall fishery yeah definitely and um you're right it's not all doom and gloom um One of the things I think that we focus on at Captains for Clean Water is you don't fix problems by simply saying, hey, here's a problem. Um, If you go to a policymaker, if you send them an email, if you go to their office and meet with them, you say, here's this problem that needs to be addressed. One of the first things to say is, okay, what should we do? So I think the biggest thing that that one of the most important things to keep in mind and that we do keep in mind is we have to bring attention to a problem, but we also have to bring attention to the solution. And I think that's something that um, stands out with Everglades Restoration is there's scientifically sound solution to these problems. Um, It just takes advocating to keep you know, progress make, made towards those solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, Everglades Restoration 
is it is huge. It, it's 68 massive infrastructure projects, everything from bridges to canals to reservoirs, um, and it's it's the largest ecosystem restoration project or suite of projects of its kind in the world. So um, it is very very large, but I think to for people to kind of wrap their head around it is there was changes made to the ecosystem you know, over the course of decades where canals were dug, levees were built, water was bled off of that landscape that was once marsh and swamp. And those didn't happen overnight. And, and they were massive. They were efforts from private people, from the government um, back in, you know, the turn of the century. And so the concept is fairly simple, right? We, we change the flow of water to fix it. You reverse what was done and you reestablish the flow of water south to the Everglades. And that's what the 68 projects that make up SERP or the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, that's what they do. Could you explain too a little bit about how SERP works from a funding and legislative standpoint, just so that people can kind of understand when we're sending emails to representatives Mm -hmm. and we're asking them to fund this. How does that kind of work in in a simple kind of overview of the legislation piece? Yeah. So two things. One, um, when SERP was voted into law in the year 2000, um, it was developed as a partnership between the state of Florida and the federal government. And seeing that Everglades National Park um, and the Everglades system is a world heritage site, it's a national treasure not unlike Yellowstone or Glacier or, you know, any of these other amazing places we have in our country. Um, so there, there was this joint agreement that the state of Florida and the federal government would partner to complete this massive, massive restoration project. That was 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And the progress on that has basically been delayed. As a, re, as a result of lack of consistent funding. When you're getting, you know, limited funding and you're getting funding in these kind of peaks and valleys, what, re, what the result is, is these big projects, you have all these starts and stops. You have an infrastructure project that might take, you know, a decade from start to finish. And if every two years, you're getting a different amount of funding, you you know, it's, it makes the thing take 20 years. And so that's really historically been the largest challenge. Um, The state, especially recently, has done uh, a much better job of, of kind of ponying up the dollars for Everglades restoration. Uh, And, you know, I guess where we're at today is, the federal government's kind of playing catch up. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, we have a, a very significant opportunity. You know, uh, last year under the Trump administration, we got $250 million, which was uh, historic funding for Everglades. Mm-hmm. The year before that was $200 million, which was at, the, at its time historic funding for the Everglades. Um, right now, we are at a place where um, the Army Corps of Engineers has looked at all the projects within SERP and determined that they could spend uh, $725 million a year 
to execute the projects. They're ready to put shovels in the ground on, on these things, and that's what they would need for funding. Uh, so there's been a proposal out to Washington, D.C., to Congress and to the president um, to do exactly that, to basically put together a bill um, to fund Everglades restoration. And there's it's kind of twofold. There's uh, the, the president's general budget, which they'll put together, his administration will put together, and it gets passed to Congress, and then the House and the Senate will kind of go through all that and will make their version of it um, and then work that through. So there's um, an opportunity there for $725 million in that annual budget Mm -hmm. for that. There's also a second opportunity with an infrastructure package, which would be a bill, um, like a stimulus bill, to uh, create these create funding for infrastructure projects around the country. And that, you, you think infrastructure, it's, it's things like roads, um, bridges, dams, uh, power stations, you know, any, any big infrastructure uh, deal. And Everglades Restoration just so happens to be infrastructure heavy. Hmm. It's reservoirs, it's, it's canals, it's, it's filling in some canals and knocking down levees, it's building bridges. Um, it's adding massive pump stations and uh, building filter marshes. So there's an opportunity there um, through that infrastructure package that is in the works. In Washington, you know, that will happen in the form of a bill. So that bill doesn't exist right now. It's, it's in creation. And that's really where we have this time-sensitive opportunity for people to take action and send an email to Congress saying Everglades restoration is important to our country as a nation. It's important to me as a citizen and as your constituent, and we would like you to support uh, Everglades restoration and fund Everglades restoration fully. Um, So we've got an ask there of $5 billion uh, to fully fund the existing authorized Everglades restoration projects. And what you guys are saying is the most important thing right now that's time-sensitive as these decisions are being made is that people send an email to their representatives. You guys have developed a tool to help make that easy. You can go to captainsforcleanwater.org, and you can hit the Take Action button, and that's going to help you send that email. For somebody listening going, is an email really going to help? What would you say to them? Yeah, absolutely an email helps, and absolutely everybody's individual voice is not only helps, it's critical. Um, we've actually seen success with this in the past, and in, when we had first started uh, Captains for Clean Water, the, there was a huge push to have one of the cornerstone projects of Everglades Restoration put into action. It was known that the bill was it originated in the Senate. It was known as Senate Bill 10. Hmm. Um, and it was basically the EAA reservoir. It's a massive uh, reservoir south of Lake Okeechobee that would take water from the lake during the wet season, store the water, clean the water, and then send it south, deliver it south to the southern part of the Everglades during the dry season when it's needed. So this project... Um, as we said, these, these are this is a partnership between the state and federal government. So the project was passed 
the, the legislature in Florida was signed off on by the governor. And then we needed the kind of the, the counter component to that, which was the federal government side. And that would happen through what's known as uh, the Water Resources Development Act, or WARDA. Every year, every couple years, sometimes it's every two years, every four years, whatever it is, they will put together a bill in Washington, D.C. that makes up all of the water resources projects. And that's, that project would have to be in that bill in order to get funded. So we found out that, uh, you know, the timing of it, that, that EAA reservoir project was held up in some kind of bureaucratic red tape in the White House, in the Office of Management and Budget, and the bill, the WARDA bill, was getting ready to go to Congress to vote. And if that if it didn't make it in there, then we'd have to wait till the next WARDA bill, which might be years. So um, one of the very first kind of calls to action we did using this tool was around that. And we put the word out that, listen, here's this opportunity, much like we have today. Um, we've got to be vocal. We need people from around the country to put pressure on the White House. This isn't just a Florida problem. And um, we need you to take action. Mm -hmm. And people did that. And uh, literally within a few days, uh, 30, over 30,000 people sent over 60,000 emails. And the result was that project got pushed and expedited into WARDA and passed and now here we are what five years later and there's shovels in the ground actually creating that project so um, it does work and i can tell you that uh, without people taking that action and sending that email we'd be in a totally different spot today and that kind of touched a little bit with talking about the, just the need to put political pressure on people to follow through with what's already been said and agreed upon that this is needed. Mm -hmm. You know, here we are 21 years later and people have said this is needed and biologists have agreed and, and all parties, but we haven't got the funding. And I think for some people, maybe one of the things that either deters them away or maybe uh, diminishes their hope is they just think it's just all too political. Mm -hmm. What would you say to somebody who feels like this is just all too political we should just give up on it. Yeah. I mean, the easy route would be to give up. I think the consequence of that would be pretty crappy for mm. the next generation. Um, I mean, I know myself, I, you know, walked away from my dream job as a fishing guide. Certainly, you know, never grew up aspiring to uh, sit in an office or mm. attend Zoom meetings and meet with politicians. But, um, you know, sometimes the right thing to do isn't the easy thing to do, but really taking action today is pretty easy. Um, as far as it being political, it, it requires political action. It requires political will out of our representatives to get these things done. That only is going to happen with public pressure, but Everglades restoration is one of the very few things in our state and in DC right now um, that is bipartisan, where we see support and people working across the aisle, doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican, independent, 
um, we see a unified effort there um, and, and a true bipartisan effort, which today in, mm-hmm. in our country's politics today is extremely rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, we should be optimistic about. This is, this isn't a conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican problem. Um, it's a problem that faces us all. It doesn't care, you know, what party you are. Um, and, and, it's going to take action across the aisle uh, to, to see progress. And we are seeing that. So mm-hmm. the more that we can encourage our policymakers um, on both sides of the aisle to take action here, uh, the more likely will we will be to, to see a little less of the, you know, horse trading that goes on in politics and a little more action. And I know for me, you know, there's a lot of listeners that, live very far away from South Florida. But I'm really encouraged because I think that not only can this save a really important fishery and really important waters, but that this can provide hope and set a precedent for other fisheries. It seems like almost every day somebody sends me a message about, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? All across the United States. But you had mentioned earlier that this would be the largest restoration project. Uh, Is that in North America or... Uh, of world. its kind in the world. Yeah. Um, there's been some, some really big ones in, in China and uh, some other areas in Asia. And, and, um, but this, uh, of its kind, this, is, this will be the, the largest and is today the largest of its kind in the world. Um, you know, as far as like people taking action or, or being involved, there is... There's no shortage of water issues across the country, right? I mean, hmm. there's some successes. You look at like Chesapeake Bay, um, but there's issues right now, you know, with everything from boundary waters to Mississippi River to marsh loss in Louisiana, um, saltwater intrusion there, way too many nutrients coming out of the Mississippi River Delta, resulting in massive dead zones. Um, you know, issues with the Apalachicola River. Um, and, and lack of water there, there's, unfortunately, there's a ton of problems all around the country. But I think you're right. If we can be successful in completing the largest restoration project attempted to date, then that just shows us that we can attack these other ones, right? It's kind of like if we can put man on the moon, we can do this. Yeah. I, I think that brings so much hope to people who all across North America are discouraged with what they're seeing and they're thinking about what will future generations see here. And they hear stories about older generations. I've had people reach out to me saying it's depressing to hear older people talk about how great the fishing is. Mm-hmm. Well, we could just say, well, let's not listen, which would be ridiculous. Or we could say, let's not keep this trend. You know, because right. one day we'll be people will be depressed listening to us. Right. You know, and um, you, you had mentioned, you know, sending an email, which people can do at the website if people want to go above and beyond, because that is a really important, but it is a really easy step. If somebody's saying, I want to do more than just send an email, what would you encourage them to do to make their voice heard? Yeah. So I think there's kind of two actions you can take. There's like the short term here and now, and then there's the long term. Um, the right now here and now is we need action. We have a very limited window to hopefully get an infrastructure bill out of D.C. that will fund Everglades restoration. That's, that's sending that email. 
um, you can do that. You can then take and, you know, go out through your social media channels, your network of friends, family, um, and get them to take that action as well, right? You can, you can be a steward for that and, and you can turn your one email into a hundred emails or more by doing that. The other thing is, uh, you know, you can go on our website, you can sign up for our newsletter to, that way you're able to be uh, kept up to speed on progress, mm. on opportunities or uh, issues or threats that we see, bad legislation, bad water policy, things like that. It's a, it's a way for us to keep you educated. Um, and, and you know, that way you're, we also have the ability to really contact you quickly if we do have a, a, a small window of opportunity that we need you to take action. Um, sign up for our newsletter or our, our emails. It's super easy. It doesn't cost anything. Um, you can become a member. Becoming a member of the organization, it's only $30 for the year. Um, and it's really important because that helps us quantify the size of our voice. When I go talk to a representative in Washington, D.C., um, you know, and I can say that, look, I'm, you know, we're speaking on behalf of this many members it's something quantifiable that policymakers they deal in they deal in numbers right they deal in jobs and budget and that's just how they see things so um, for us to be able to to have the, the larger base we have the more members we have the the more representation we basically carry the more weight we carry um, and then the other is just building awareness uh, whether it's putting that captains for clean water sticker on your car or your truck or your boat. Um, whether it's wearing the Captains for Clean Water hat, um, those are, do, do, don't underestimate the power of that. Um, one, our representatives and policymakers notice that. They see it. You know, when they're sitting in their office in Tallahassee or Washington, D.C., and they're getting these emails from people, and then they go home and they go to their kid's baseball game and they see people wearing Captains for Clean Water hats, or they go to breakfast and they see somebody wearing a captain's for clean water shirt or they're going to church and they see the bumper sticker um that kind of you know reconfirms and it's that awareness piece it also um it also helps us bring more people into the fight into the fold uh you know if you're wearing that hat it kind of comes with a responsibility when someone says hey what's captain's for clean water that's that's your opportunity to, to you want to know what you can do. That's your opportunity right there to say, oh, it's this effort to mm -hmm. fix water quality issues, um, to save the Everglades. And here's, here's what it is. And you should really get involved. Go join captains. Go to captainsforcleanwater.org and, and join. Those seem like very simple things, but they're really, really important. They're, that's the foundation of our organization. I mean, we are a, a grassroots organization Daniel and I, who started the organization, are fishing guides. You know, we have no experience as people running a nonprofit or whatever. Um, the way that we attacked this problem was through exactly that. It was th through building awareness and consensus and grassroots uh, efforts. And the more that people can help us scale those and expand those, the, the more successful we'll be. And I think we've seen a lot of success already just in the fact that people are rallying around this in guides from, you know, blue water to the flats, from live bait to fly fishing, from catch and keep to catch and release. We're seeing people from all different 
groups who sometimes don't get along mm-hmm. get together for this because we can all rally around protecting the resource in, in this way. My last question is, if this goes through, what's the first thing that you're going to do? I'm going to want to pop champagne bottles, but um, I think history would uh, teach me that, you know, don't celebrate until it's done. Mm. Um, I'll be, you know, first thing I'll do is probably thank all of the people that took action to get us to this point. Um, Thank all of the brands. I mean, you mentioned that talking about how this this opportunity and Everglades restoration um, is kind of a unifying thing. And we see this bipartisan political support, not only from policymakers, but from the public. You also see it, like you said, with different, you know, stakeholders that normally wouldn't necessarily align on everything. You see this unified, everybody staying together. We see it in the outdoor industry where you have competitors who are each other's largest competitors that are all being part of the same message and standing side by side with each other. Um, it's something that we can be, that people are unified on. And I, so I think the first thing I would do is if we're able to have success here is I would reach out and, and thank all of those people who did this and let them know that, um, you know, it's a time to celebrate and it's also a time to keep our foot on the gas that we're, we've learned that if, if we think that everything's solved in the year 2000, when SERP was passed, everybody popped champagne bottles and we thought, here we go, we're going to restore the Everglades. 21 years later, we're a lot farther behind than, than they would have anticipated we would have been. So hmm. um, keeping that in mind, it would be a, a moment of celebration and also just a, an inspiring time to, to push on the gas even harder. Well, thank you again for all your time. It's uh, encouraging to sit down and be here today, and I'm proud to be a small part of it, and uh, I'm really hopeful and encouraged by what's to come. But thank you for making some time today to sit down and break down the nuts and bolts. Yeah, man, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for all your support, and thank you to everybody listening. Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy This is The Captain's Collective.